There's chaos in the shipping container business and it impacts agriculture. And we catch up with the new Deputy Chief of USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service about supporting projects that focus on climate smart agriculture. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. The lowly shipping container isn't looking too lowly these days. Those long steel boxes that you see traveling the highways and railways of the United States carry a lot of material, including agricultural products around the globe. But there's a problem. There are too few of them, and based on some economic choices, access to these valuable containers is limited for farmers. We caught up with Todd Fitchett, Western Farm Press, to discuss the issue, which is impacting not only farmers in the West, but producers in other parts of the country as well. Let's check in with Todd. Todd, uh, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Thank you for having me, Willie. So I'm having you here because we're talking about something I actually never thought of that this would happen. Um, Because, you know, when I watch the movies, I see a lot of shipping containers. When I travel around, I see a lot of shipping containers. Turns out there aren't a lot of shipping containers. Is that what's going on? It, it depends on if you if you look at the rail cars. Um, looking at the rail cars going down the tracks where I live in Arizona, uh, there's a bazillion of them, but I don't know if they're loaded or empty. And right. I just I just know that they're on rail cars. But uh, yeah, that's what that's what I've been hearing. There's uh, there's a, a huge shortage of containers um, for well for farmers for you know for ag exports. So what what's driving this? What I mean, obviously the we can blame the pandemic only so far. So what's going on with the shipping container business? And then explain to me why that matters, especially out west, but also for my guys here in in the Midwest too. Well, as as I understand it, um, this started about a year ago or a little less than a year ago. Um, folks were trying to, particularly in California, were trying to get tree nuts uh, exported overseas. And uh, and that just didn't happen um, because of some issues that I'm told with the uh, shipping companies. Um, they they found it easier to uh, I guess to you know to kind of play some games so to speak with uh, with stuff. And um, some of these companies opted to send empty shipping containers back to China for a quick refill. And uh, and there's some issues uh, with the uh, federal government on that one. Yeah, I saw that in your story, and I will provide a link for this. But the, and you got, I think you've got a California representative involved in this too. They actually shipped empty containers back to China. That's yeah, that's what I'm told. I mean, if if you're you know if you're a trucking company, for example, you you want to you know you want to haul a loaded trailer from the East Coast or the West Coast and then get another one and then haul it back because that's how you make your money. But apparently the um, the shipping companies were able to um, make more money shipping these empty containers back to uh, Asia. Because uh, what I was told by a, by a drainage company in California is once your commodity hits the port in um, China, and we'll, we'll just say pistachios. So you got pistachios going into China. Um, when they hit the ground there, they still have to go inland um, for a, a period of time to be emptied, processed, the container to be um, cleaned, and then sent back to the port. And that takes several days. Whereas if you've got an empty container, it hits the ground, they fill it with whatever they're gonna fill it with, 
and they ship it. They put it on a boat and ship it right back. So there must be a premium for that. Apparently, it's easier to show up, fill it full of iPhones, and send it back here. Yeah, yeah, and and um, but there's some issues with the federal government and and um, and some federal law that um, that some folks are looking at. And I spoke with uh, a representative out of California, Jim Costa, and then I spoke with a representative out of uh, Nebraska, uh, Adrian Smith, uh, by phone. And both of them have been working this deal, and, uh, and and they're kind of spearheading an issue with Congress. There was a letter with about 110, 120 different signatures on it um, to the Federal Maritime Commission, asking them to uh, to look into this and, and see if there's any violations of federal law. Well, it is interesting because, you know, you sit there and you produce your crop. And as you noted, 100 percent of the U.S. almond crop or almond crop is in California, as is 98 percent of the pistachio crop. But we also look at oranges. We look at other key crops and and they move by container rice, I think, as well. And believe it or not, there's been some container shipments of dry distillers grains out of the Midwest um, as a way to move them. And so. No containers and this party game of sending empty containers uh, back to China to bring them back with whatever. That's a challenge for the future of shipping. If we can't move it, we can't sell it. it exactly. And, and um, Representative Smith mentioned the, um, you know, the livestock products, the the hog and the you know the beef products coming out of the Midwest. Um, those are obviously um, affected. And he talked about freezing. I guess if you freeze them um, really deep, then you can ship them um, and they'll, they'll carry longer. But then there's a premium that, um, that you're not going to get price-wise. And uh, so some of these commodities, like you mentioned, the oranges, um, they're perishable. Um, mm -hmm. Nuts, yeah, rice, not so much. Um, but if you've got a perishable crop and you need to get it there in, in a certain amount of time, um, it's probably not going to happen unless you pay a whole bunch of money to put it on an aircraft. So you mentioned that uh, both uh, Representative Costa and Representative Smith are looking at this. I mean, what, how much, what kind of thumbscrews can they put to the Maritime Commission? You know, I, I don't know, politically speaking, um, you know, they write a letter to the Maritime Commission and, and then the commission does what it does. Um, they have been looking, the Maritime Commission has apparently already been looking into this. There's been calls. Uh, I spoke with Western Growers Association, yeah. uh, California Fresh Fruit, um, and, you know, they've they've obviously been talking with their elected representatives about this. And uh, Western Growers has a uh, representative in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, she's been talking to people back there. So, yeah, there's some screws that can be turned probably, but like with politics it just it takes time yeah it does take time and but the bad news is oranges don't have time no they neither don't. do neither do livestock products and like you say yeah the the interesting products that are shipped and i think people might not realize how much really does move by container today versus uh the old days uh you know a lot of things would go bulk in the past right and that's not happening containers mean that when they get on the ground on the other end they can be loaded on the back of a truck and moved inland relatively efficiently and uh, and bulk moves differently. And that's why they've moved to containers for a lot of products. This could be a serious challenge. And I think any farmer anywhere should pay attention to this. And I suppose the short answer is that every farmer should probably reach out to their congressman and say, what the heck's going on here? 
yeah, that'd be, you know, that'd be a great start. Um, and, and with, with the equipment, the, the drainage company told me that y- you have a shipping container. Okay. That shipping container, um, need, when it moves across land needs to go on a trailer and those were in short supply as well. And, and so there was, there were some interesting issues with uh, just being able to get containers from point A to point B, from what I understand. Um, you know, one would think there'd almost be a one-for-one relationship, containers to trailers, but apparently there isn't. And um, so that's just, you know, that was making for uh, some difficult times, according to uh, this guy I talked to in Fresno, California. And then be on both ends of this, right? I mean, trucks in China as well as trucks here, or trucks in any receiving point, right? Moving, tra- moving tr- containers. Yeah, I I don't know what you know. Yeah. What they do in in other countries, but but here um, they have the and and then of course they've got refrigerated containers too, which right. makes sense for the for the perishable crops. Um, you have to either power you have to power those uh, by alternate means or or plug them in. And um, the guy was telling me that in the uh, at least the uh, port of Oakland, they they, didn't, they ran out of power space. They couldn't plug any more in because there weren't any more receptacles available. And so that was that was creating some problems. It seems like the obviously there were issues at the ports. They couldn't get workers. They couldn't move things. There was a problem with the pandemic. Hopefully some of this will sort itself out. Or maybe a longer extension cord for Long Beach. I don't know which, but the, I think when we look at all this, I think that as a farmer listens to this, I think it's important to understand that it's all well and good that you can raise your crop, but if you can't move it, you can't sell it, and this is a serious issue. And it, yeah, even well, though it might be an almond, it might be an almond guy in California, a corn and soybean guy in the Midwest ought to pay attention to this. You know, they, they all should, whether they have a perishable crop or not, because, you know, they're all in the business of, of selling that commodity for the highest price they can get. Well, Todd Fichette, we appreciate your coverage of this topic, which uh, I believe is an ongoing issue. So we may revisit it again. Keep in touch with the representatives, Costa and Smith and others, and uh, keep us updated. I appreciate your time sure. and uh, have a great day. Thank you very much, Willie. We appreciate Todd's insight on the shipping container issue, which continues to challenge farmers, and we look forward to checking out his future coverage. Now we turn to a program USDA is funding that brings new money to innovative and non-traditional approaches to conservation solutions. Jackie Facka, policy editor of Farm Progress, talks with Jimmy Bramblett, deputy chief of USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, about the program and the priorities for funding. Let's listen in on Jackie's conversation. Well, this is Jackie Fatka, Policy Editor for Farm Progress, and I am privileged to be able to speak today with NRCS Deputy Chief Jimmy Bramlett, and we are going to be talking about an announcement out Tuesday uh, from the NRCS offices about some funding uh, and, and some of that directed towards some climate smart agricultural projects, and uh, we're just going to jump right in. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Jimmy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Well, why don't you tell me first off a little bit about uh, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, which this uh, $75 million is going to be used, directed through. Tell me a little bit about RCPP. Okay, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program really is designed to promote coordination between NRCS and 
the partners with whom we work out there across the landscape. Uh, Congress recognized in the 2014 Farm Bill that uh, there's an opportunity for the federal government to leverage resources with the private sector or the non-federal government sector to be able to advance conservation installation out there across the landscape. And so they created this regional conservation partnership program. The 2018 Farm Bill, Congress reauthorized the regional conservation partnership program, provided a little more emphasis on the announcement that came out today known as alternative funding arrangements. And so uh, there's a true, what we call a traditional regional conservation partnership program, RCPP Classic, which is really where we work with partners who identify areas of large-scale geographic landscapes, multiple farms, multiple range settings, multiple woodland settings to say, hey, in this geographic landscape, we have a broad resource issue or set of resource issues that need to be addressed. And by coming together, uh, us with partners, NRCS, and the multitude of landowners within that geography, we think we can be very effective in helping improve natural resource sustainability across the landscape. You know, part of the, the benefit of uh, these alternative funding arrangements is, is actually being able to make that dollar of investment go farther from the government side. So that role of the public-private partnership uh, and um, and being able to address some of these issues uh, a little bit more focused. Um, and, and I understand that there is going to be a focus on climate smart practices. Uh, you know, for those farmers out there, what does this mean to 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 them? Um, what could they see from this this funding for for their own farms? So. For the first part of your question, the alternative funding arrangements, a little bit of a distinction, more distinction on that. So with our traditional RCPP program, we're working with partners uh, to identify landowners whom NRCS can provide technical and financial assistance directly to to help install uh, conservation practices on their operation. Under the alternative funding arrangement, more of the funding actually goes directly to the partners themselves and they in turn work with individual landowners to try to identify the resource issues and concerns on their operations, uh, on farming, ranching, and woodland operations, and then identify what type of conservation practices are necessary to help address or remediate those resource issues and concerns. Even with AFA alternative funding arrangements, there are still some federal requirements that we have to pursue as far as um, confirming landowner eligibility with items like adjusted gross income or conservation compliance, making sure that the landowners are in compliance with the 1985 Farm Bill and so on and so forth. And then we're still directed by Congress to provide technical assistance to the point that the partner needs. But it is a, a manifestation of the RCPT program that's really trying to help uh, get that partner that we work with more directly connected to those farmers and ranchers and woodland owners in such a fashion that they can more quickly adopt uh, conservation and get those conservation practices on land. And so for Climate Smart, uh, as, as part of the consideration that was in this announcement, as many folks know, President Biden recently signed an executive order on climate change and uh, has given a lot of encouragement and direction to uh, federal agencies to work with farmers and ranchers and other uh, individuals out there across the landscape to be a big part of helping address that issue. There's a recognition that farmers are really, really good environmental stewards out there. 
And uh, this is an opportunity really to kind of help further illustrate the work that they do in concert with the federal government in such a fashion that it helps address some of the climate change considerations on land, across landscape. And just so I understand, uh, so some of these AF uh, alternative funding arrangement partners could be some of those folks who are on the ground already working with farmers, people that they may already have relationships with or organizations that um, are, are more grassroots um, than, you know, the USDA itself would be. Is that is that correct? You have it exactly right. Uh, NRCS partners with a very wide range of individuals, not individuals, but organizations and entities that uh, can help deliver the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. That can be a state unit of government, a county unit of government. It can be a tribal nation. It can be a soil and water conservation district out there. It can be a non-governmental organization. So there's just a whole litany of uh, entities with whom we work. In fact, we currently under RCPP have over 2,000 partners working with us in a variety of projects, almost 400 projects out there across the country in order to do uh, a lot of work with individual landowners. And the reason I keep going back to individual and private landowners is because private landowners make up about 70% of land ownership across this country. And the millions of decisions that they are making every day have a tremendous impact on natural resources, not only for their operations, but for all of us as Americans. They are one of the first environmentalists and continue to do their part for sure. You know, as you look uh, at, at what uh, we have accomplished with the RCPP program since it was first initiated after the 2014 Farm Bill and built upon in the 2018 Farm Bill, where have we seen some successes and also how much are you able to share, you know, how much money has been able to be kind of multiplied through that government uh, in the public-private partnership through the RCPP? Sure, through the 2014 Farm Bill, we had about 397 projects that uh, we approved that represented almost a billion dollars worth of NRCS financial assistance. Um, and that does not count all the technical assistance that was part of that process. But our partners have brought in more than $2 billion worth of matching funds. And so uh, there was a goal to have a one-to-one -one match every dollar that NRCS made a contribution to conservation uh, investments under this program that a partner would bring at least one dollar to that. And what we saw through the 2014 Farm Bill is that our partners far exceeded our expectations. And they're doing amazing work out there. Uh, the 2018 Farm Bill actually has a provision for renewal of high-quality projects. And as uh, the process of consideration which RCP projects to move forward, we see that our partners are doing an outstanding job, not only with the four pillars of the program, which is be able to, one, have an impact on the natural resource concerns, but bring those partner contributions that we just talked about, bring the sense of innovation into the way that we can uh, update our conservation practice standards and specifications, maybe some new and innovative uh, business practices or conservation techniques like pay for performance, or some kind of large-scale large infrastructure that addresses multiple landowners at one time, think irrigation districts down west as an example, and then bring in their expertise and their management experience for being able to administer and provide outreach, also for their level of technical assistance, because many of our partners have a very specific area of technical expertise that they're extremely good at, 
and it just gives us an opportunity to use them in a fashion that complements uh, all the technical assistance expertise of the Natural Resources Conservation Service in such a way that it can be much more efficient, much more localized, and based off of issues that are identified by them, by those organizations themselves. And, you know, when local people really identify what their issues are, their chances for success are much higher because they buy into the priorities, they buy into the solutions, and this is a program that gives us an opportunity to really work in, collect, in collaboration with them to be able to help meet their needs across the landscape. I mean, definitely an important piece of the the solution of making sure that we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach, but something that really can can find that local support. I love I love that that part of being able to accomplish that within this program. Back to what you are uh, talking about today with the $75 million in new and unique projects. Uh, is this the only uh, funding soliciting that you will do in 20, uh, 2021? Uh, will there be other opportunities later this year? Uh, how do you see the rollout of uh, that for the 2021 year? So the Natural Resources Conservation Service has a variety of programs and funding opportunities to work with partners all across the country. And they manifest themselves in a, a variety of ways. We have very specified authorized programs like the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. Uh, we will be doing another solicitation this summer. It really will be for FY22 projects, but we'll get the process started uh, even in this fiscal year. You will see some solicitations or announcement for program funding activities come out for the Conservation Innovation Grant program. In that program, we offer up to $30 million to partners that will help us push the envelope for the technology or the practices or the standards and specifications we use to work with landowners on putting conservation on the ground. So there's two manifestations of that Conservation Innovation Grant program. One is what we call on-form trials which is designed to really um, identify practices that might be um, be able to be piloted and measure the success associated with that. And then the other one is what we call CIG Classic, which is where we work with traditional partners for trying to help us find ways that we can be more innovative in the work that uh, we do just in our day-to-day operations. There are other programs like the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, Conservation Stewardship Program, the Agriculture Conservation program. These programs and the innovation components help us improve the science, the technology, the research and fusion into our delivery system and the 2,400 field offices we have across the country with all of those uh, program activities as well. In the conservation planning, we do one-on-one with those landowners. So um, you'll see some solicitations uh, come out for that. We also have a conservation collaboration grant program which is where we basically have our partners identify opportunities. Uh, we identify needs and our partners identify opportunities to help address those needs. That will be coming out sometime in this spring as well. So um, just a, there's a variety of other funding mechanisms that come from the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Many of those are at the state level. Uh, the agency has over $3 billion of financial assistance to offer out to private landowners. Uh, that being farmers, ranchers, and private woodland owners. And then uh, I should also point out, we were talking about locally-led conservation with the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. We do have a series of what we call local work groups, which are 
representatives at county, multi-county level to help our local field offices, 2,400 of them, as I mentioned, out there across the landscape, help identify what their priorities are, which conservation practices should be prioritized uh, to help address those needs. That gets fed to our state technical committees, our state conservationists, who help make the funding decisions to help meet those needs through that locally-led conservation. So it's a fascinating um, um, puzzle. That's not the right term. It's a fascinating series of programs that all complement each other, but some just for individual landowners to come into the field office and sign up through EQIP and CSP, others to collaborate with partners like RCPP to work with their neighbors and other friends in common areas to address common needs. So, um, the funding announcements are basically uh, available almost every month of the year, so we encourage anyone listening to check your state NRCS websites to see what kind of opportunities might be available to them. Very good. Well, great conclusion there. Uh, be sure to check your NRCS office if there's some money available to do those things that maybe farmers have been looking at doing or thinking about doing and, and continuing their efforts to be good stewards of the land. Uh, this is Jackie Fekka reporting uh, with NRCS Deputy Chief Jimmy Bramblett. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having us. Thanks to Jackie Fekka for that deeper look into an interesting USDA program. We look forward to hearing more about that in the future. And thanks to Todd Fitchett for his insight on the shipping container issue that's impacting farmers. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team and experts in our industry. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer and Feedstuffs, and the Farm Progress Virtual Experience. If you still have time to check out the virtual experience, just visit farmprogressshow.com for a direct connection to the virtual event. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.